When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I am Melek Frat Altai, a musician and a neuroscientist. I will be your host today, and we will be talking to Professor Tom Hayem about his new book, The World Before Us, The New Science Behind Our Human Origins, published by Yale University Press. Professor Hayem is an archaeological scientist and a radiocarbon dating specialist. He is a professor of scientific archaeology at the University of Vienna since August 2021, and is best known for his work in dating the Neanderthal extinction and the arrival of modern humans in Europe. Tom, welcome. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Not bad, not bad. Awesome. Um, so thank you for joining us today for this podcast. Um, could you please start with uh, telling us about yourself? Yeah, okay. So um, my name is Tom Hyam, and I'm a professor of evolutionary anthropology. And I work at the University of Vienna in the Department of Evolutionary Anthropology. My background is in archaeological science, and I am uh, an expert in the dating of archaeological sites using radiocarbon dating, which is the method that we most commonly use to date archaeological sites from the last 50 to 60,000 years. Anything older than that, we have to use alternative methods. And uh, so I... uh, yeah, I specialize in um, applying not just radiocarbon, but increasingly other methods to understanding more about the archaeological past. In particular, I'm interested in this period um, between about sort of 30 to 60,000 years ago, which is when we have a very interesting period where Neanderthals, uh, Homo sapiens, us in other words, and another very interesting group of humans called the Denisovans existed on Earth. And I'm interested in figuring out what happened uh, when these various populations met one another, and why it is that we're the only species of human that's left on the earth today. Great. It's an amazing topic. I'm, I'm really fascinated by it. And um, what uh, made you write uh, your book, The World Before Us? 
Why now? Yeah. So uh, I, I I never really thought I'd write a book. And uh, my dad, he's an archaeologist, he, t- he said, oh, you, you should really b- write, write a book because, um, you know, often books uh, are a great way to communicate um, interesting research and ideas to people. Most of my work previously was in publishing rather short scientific papers, uh, publishing, you know, experimental methods and some results from the work we've done. But uh, what really um, sort of spurred me to uh, write the book was uh, a lecture tour that I was giving. I went back to um, my home country of New Zealand in 2015 to give a lecture tour, which was sponsored by uh, um, an evolution um, evolution uh, group, uh, their research institute. And uh, so I went to nine main centres in 10, 12 days, which is quite a, it was quite a, a full-on tour. And um, I kept on meeting up with people afterwards and asking, answering questions. And some of the questions were to do with, uh, can you recommend a book to read about this interesting subject? And because I was talking mostly about Denisovans, um, they didn't, uh, I didn't really have a book that I could recommend. There wasn't nothing, there was nothing uh, out there on that. So I thought maybe I should do that. So uh, I asked uh, a couple of colleagues how I should go about doing this because I didn't really have an idea. And they gave me some suggestions, and so I eventually contacted an agent, and uh, she, Joanna Swainson, she helped me to uh, put together the proposal for the book. And uh, and um, unfortunately, I had so little time that I left it for about four years before I actually got off on on to really writing the proposal. Um, but then after that, uh, things went quite fast, and due to COVID, um, I was at home for a lot of time, and I had some time on my hands to work so I, I put together the book in about 18 months um, uh, during the uh, lockdowns that we experienced sadly in 2020-21 and um, what is the the pitch of your book if you were to give us one yeah so um, interestingly today we are the only species of human on earth from the genus homo and uh, when we look around in the animal kingdom and we look at primates and great apes and so on, we see that there are quite a lot of representatives of, uh, of, of those groups of the genus like Pan, for example, um, certainly more than one. And uh, what's interesting is that the last 10 to 20 years, we've seen a real revolution in the field of human evolution and anthropology in which we've managed to find uh, three and sorry, no, four uh, new species of humans that we didn't know existed before. And it turns out that it's only a few uh, thousand years ago that we were really the only human group uh, in the world. Before this, before 20,000 to 50,000 years ago, um, there were multiple groups. I mean, we can count at least eight that coexisted in the world at that time. So my book is an attempt to tell a story about who these groups were um, where they lived, how they were adapted, what their behavior was like, and uh, also um, why why it is that we're the only group left on the planet. So that's basically the, 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 the subject of the book. So in your book, you um, mention uh, several different techniques that you use to, to identify these different uh, archaic humans. And uh, we could, I guess, generally refer to them as the the ancient uh, genomics field. Could you tell us a little further about that? Yeah, so um, I uh, have been 
um, a, a witness, a, a close collaborator of um, several uh, ancient DNA specialists who've managed to improve the technique uh, over the last few few years to a point now where it's, I wouldn't say routine, but it's getting to a routine um, stage in which we can extract and sequence uh, ancient DNA from really old things, really old bones and uh, teeth. And so um, when I when I first started, uh, when I first went to uh, the University of Oxford in 2001, I, I, I made friends with some of the ancient DNA group that was there. And at that stage, uh, they were working on uh, sequencing um, uh, bones from uh, from extinct animals, uh, like like the dodo, for example, um, and 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 birds and um, and bears and so on. And when I asked them about uh, human DNA, the answer that I got was that this was not possible, and that was because of the extent to which bones were contaminated by human DNA, DNA from us. And so it seemed like it was a complete dead end. And then. Um, beginning in around, I guess, 2007, 8, 9, um, increasingly there was different news that, that was coming through that new instruments were allowing scientists to sequence in greater number the DNA from these ancient bones. And also using new chemical techniques, methods were being developed to allow us to s separate contaminating modern human DNA from authentic ancient DNA. And this uh, came as a Great surprise and very pleasant surprise. And in 2010, I was fortunate enough to be part of a team that sequenced the first extinct human genome from a, an individual of about 4,000 years old who lived in Greenland. And this was worked on with Escavillus Labs lab in the University of Copenhagen and the Museum of the Center for Geogenetics. And uh, so since then, ancient DNA has really exploded, as I say. And uh, ancient DNA is right at the heart of this new view we have of uh, of the archaeological record, which uh, has allowed us to paint a much fuller picture of exactly what happened uh, when Homo sapiens came out of Africa and started to meet these other groups that they'd been separated from in evolutionary terms for hundreds of thousands of years. The most important and the most well-known, of course, being the Neanderthals. So um, there are different types of uh, archaic humans, um, as you mentioned, um, and thanks to these techniques, now we seem to know a little more about them. Could you tell us a bit further on, on these different uh, human types? Yeah, that's right. Um, so, as I said, I think the most uh, well-known would be would be the Neanderthals. And uh, you have to imagine that at some point, more than about 500,000 years ago, humans like us and Neanderthals shared a common ancestor. And at some point, that ancestral population split. And uh, some of those people ended up in Eurasia and Western Eurasia, and others remained in Africa, and still others moved into Eastern parts of Eurasia. Um, so we all share a common route, but we all went our own way in evolutionary terms. And after the separation, we evolved in slightly different ways and became, became adapted to more local conditions, Neanderthals to the conditions in Western Eurasia, which were um, a mix of challenging conditions, including very cold conditions sometimes, and then warmer conditions rather like ours at other times. And of course, uh, Homo sapiens predominantly evolving in Africa, in different regions of Africa, similarly um, uh, adapting to those conditions. And then um, later, as I said, um, once uh, Homo sapiens uh, came out of Africa and into Eurasia, these groups met up again so we have um, Neanderthals, 
Homo sapiens, Denisovans, who are Neanderthal relatives, close cousins, who predominantly lived in eastern Eastern Eurasia. And amongst the Denisovans, a group that was only discovered using ancient genetics in 2010, we now know that there was more complexity in this group even than we thought before. Rather than being a single population, we know that there were at least two quite separated populations of Denisovans. One we um, recently start to term the Northern Denisovans, another the Southern Denisovans. The Southern Denisovans predominantly living in places like Ireland, Southeast Asia, perhaps Papua New Guinea and parts of um, Melanesia. Um, some analyses have suggested that there may even be three different subpopulations of Denisovans. And then um, in 2003, the incredible discovery of Homo floresiensis, the so-called hobbits uh, on the island of Flores in Indonesia, um, these very uh, short-statured uh, uh, humans that were found uh, by a team of Indonesian and Australian archaeologists led by Mike Morwood. And then in 2019, on the island of Luzon in the Philippines, the discovery at Kayao Cave of the uh, of a similarly interesting and small group of humans called Homo luzonensis. And then finally, um, uh, five years ago in the cave in South Africa uh, called Rising Star Cave in the Cradle of Humankind near Johannesburg, the incredible discovery of uh, Homo naledi, uh, similarly, quite small, um, dating to probably more than 250,000 years ago. So we're not sure if these 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 humans overlapped with later humans that the type we're talking about uh, 50 to 60,000 years ago. But, you know, who really knows? So we have now a flavor of, of a very bushy and diverse uh, group of different humans from different parts of the world. And intriguingly, we know for sure that these different groups met with one another on more than one occasion. And when they did, they uh, interbred with uh, each other and uh, exchanged DNA and hybridized, which uh, gives us a very um, uh, interesting and uh, rather uh, extraordinary genetic legacy, which we inherit from some of these archaic humans. Exactly. And um, so um, with uh, Neanderthals, uh, you mentioned that the Homo sapiens um, um, got in contact and in fact they interbred so how similar were the neanderthals to homo sapiens and what sort of uh, interaction did they have apart from interbreeding of course yeah it's it's a good it's a good question and um, one which has been uh, highly debated over the last uh, century i guess um, we 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 had a, a long running debate um, because we were it was very difficult for us to know whether neanderthals or um, homo sapiens ever met one another and this is because radiocarbon dating, my method, uh, is at the uh, limit of the technique. So around 50,000 years ago, 40 to 50,000 years ago, it's not very precise. So if we get a date, it comes with a margin of error and uncertainty that sometimes can be plus or minus five or 600 years. And so we, when we're dating the latest Neanderthal sites and the earliest Homo sapiens sites, was a, a deal of overlap and this was in, interpreted in different ways by some people um, more recently though we've managed to improve the technique and improve the uh, way in which we do the dating and we found that we have a great deal of confidence now that there was an overlap of several thousand years between the dates of the latest neanderthals before they disappear and the dates of the earliest homo sapiens as they come into uh, Western Eurasia. And so um, we now have a very good idea 
of um, of the fact that these groups must have spent a considerable amount of time overlapping with one another. And this uh, was confirmed, um, of course, uh, by ancient DNA, which showed that since 2010, which showed that uh, Homo sapiens have interbred with Neanderthals and have a genetic legacy. The questions really um, focus now on you know how similar we were and uh, what Neanderthals were like. And again, there's a lot of debate about this. Some people now increasingly feel that Neanderthals were actually a very well-adapted, um, quite behaviorally advanced group, uh, not uh, as uh, we once thought, uh, sort of backward and a bit slow and um, not as gifted as us in terms of technology and cognition. Uh, we see a lot of evidence increasingly for the fact that Neanderthals were able to uh, do things that we previously hadn't considered them able to. For, for example, um, using uh, uh, quite refined technological um, developments and breakthroughs in terms of making stone tools, uh, making certain types of hafted resin uh, glues that we use to stick stone tool st tips to wooden hafted implements to be able to make uh, wooden spears. Uh, questions about whether or not they were able to make um, ornaments and decorative artifacts and perhaps even art uh, have um, to an extent been resolved um, with recent discoveries. But as I say, there are other um, colleagues that uh, don't accept all of the uh, all of this evidence. And I think suggest that whilst Neanderthals might have been able to do some of those things, they weren't in the same league as Homo sapiens. So again, there's a lot of debate and discussion going on at the moment about how closely how close we were and how similar we were. But what we do know for sure is that we were able to interbreed with one another and create offspring that then had children of their own. Um, although there's a debate there too in terms of how successful that off interbreeding was. Um, in the last few years, um, for example, we think that there's evidence that um, maybe one in 50 so-called interbreeding events resulted in an, in an offspring that was able to then go on and interbreed. So there could have been perhaps sterility issues with these people, which we often find when different groups become evolutionarily separated from one another. Um, so there's a lot still to, 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 to be discovered and a lot still to find out and lots that's still under, under discussion. But compared to where we were in 2010, we now know a lot more about the relationship between Neanderthals and, uh, and modern humans. And what about the Denisovans? It, uh, they are even uh, less known than, than the Neanderthals. Yes, that's right. So the Denisovans are a very curious uh, uh, example because these, these, this group was really discovered um, on the basis of ancient genomics and ancient DNA. And uh, colleagues uh, of mine in, um, in the Russian Academy of Sciences in Siberia and Novosibirsk have been excavating in a site called Denisova Cave for many, many years. And they, um, they found a cave which is very deep, um, occupied for about a quarter of a million years, maybe, maybe more. And uh, they found tiny vestiges and remains of, of humans, a tooth here, a little finger bone there, and so on. But it wasn't until they got DNA um, extracted by the Max Planck um, Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany, that, uh, that this incredible um, realization dawned that there was a, a new group of humans out there, not Neanderthals and not Homo sapiens. Um, and we've been calling them the Denisovans uh, ever since 2010. And so this is a group that, uh, as I say, lives in uh, 
the predominant, their distribution is in Eastern Eurasia. We have evidence from the Denisova cave, which is about halfway across Eurasia. We have some evidence for them in um, on the Tibetan plateau in Western China, and probably also in um, Southeast Asia, in uh, Laos, um, perhaps also in um, uh, a, a jawbone that was um, fished up between China and Taiwan out of the sea. And um, most of the evidence that we've got for Denisovans isn't from skeletons or pieces of bone. Interestingly, it's actually from the, the, the ancient DNA and the DNA that we find in living humans. Because rather like with Neanderthals, scientists have discovered that certain groups of living people have uh, ancestry that's derived from Denisovans, just like Neanderthals uh, derive, um, we derive ancestry from Neanderthals. And it's interesting that... Uh, in terms of the distribution of this Denisovan DNA, we find majority of it in, in Melanesia, places like Papua New Guinea, um, Australia, amongst Aboriginal people. And we also find it in um, islands Southeast Asia and places like the Philippines and, and Indonesia, places east, places to the east of the so-called Wallace's line. We find lower amounts in Eastern Asia, places like China, South, in South Asia, places like India, and also amongst Native American people, who bring bring with them some of the this uh, DNA uh, when they um, when when the first people moved into the Americas, and so we we have um, uh, this incredible legacy again of uh, of DNA, and now we are trying to understand exactly what this DNA is and what it gives uh, humans. But intriguingly, it looks as though a lot of that DNA uh, that we inherit is giving us um, some kind of immunological benefit. So more than 400 gene variants uh, that have been discovered deriving from Denisovans code for um, benefits from uh, immun immunological responses. And so we think that perhaps the reason that this, is, um, this has happened is that early Homo sapiens who moved into these areas interbred with Denisovans who were living there and some of the DNA that they got was beneficial and adaptively advantageous to them. And therefore it was selected for. And so um, a fantastic example of, of a similar type of thing is um, found amongst living Tibetans today. And uh, this uh, discovery was made uh, shortly after the Denisova genome was published. Uh, basically, uh, if, if you have um, a version of the EPAS1 uh, gene uh, that comes from Denisovans, you have this ability to live at high altitude and avoid hypoxia difficulties that people face when they go to climb Mount Everest, for example. People living in Tibet today have 95% of them have this variant of the this EPAS1 gene that allows them to live at high altitude, to have children at high altitude that don't die. And this this gene variant comes directly from uh, Denisovans. So we're learning more and more all the time about these uh, very interesting uh, genetic um, advantages that, uh, that, that that accrued from, from the Denisovans in this case, rather than from the Neanderthals. Could you tell us a little bit about the story of Denny? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, so this is uh, a, a, one of the chapters uh, in, in my book, which uh, was a real research highlight um, uh, in the lab I work in over the last few years. Um, so basically, um, working at Denisova Cave, my job was mainly to work on the chronologies but because I'm interested in the general archaeology as well, um, I, I was also keen to, to make a contribution elsewhere. And 
Um, once uh, in 20, uh, 2014, um, my wife, Katarina, and I, who was uh, who's a, my research partner, were at the site, uh, and uh, we came up with an idea. And um, the idea was basically built around two things. One, the bones from Denisova, um, 95% of them are broken up into tiny bone fragments that you can't actually identify to species. They've been eaten up by animals like hyenas. And the second point is that those bones often have very high levels of DNA, ancient DNA that can be retrieved and sequenced. And so we um, we came up with an idea of using um, a method of identification of, um, uh, of bone, bone protein sequences that we could then use to identify the bones to species or genus level. And so we had this idea that if we could screen enough bones using this technique, that we could find some that were giving us this collagen fingerprint of uh, hominidae, which we can then genetically sequence. And so we um, we started uh, doing this work in uh, 2015. Initially, it went a bit slowly, but then we were very fortunate to get a, um, a very committed and keen master student who worked on the project called Samantha Brown. And uh, Samantha worked for several months extracting collagen from s- tiny bone fragments. And at first, the first 700 fragments that she analyzed um, didn't produce any uh, hominidae or um, human family uh, uh, collagen peptides. They were all you know, from animals like mammoths and bears and uh, wolves and things like that. Um, but to her credit, she continued working hard and managed to uh, do another 700. And uh, number 1,227 turned out to be um, a bone of a hominidae. A tiny bone it was, about 2.4 centimeters high. You'd never um, know it was a human bone um, unless you did some of this uh, biochemistry work on it. And uh, to our amazement, when it was uh, genetically sequenced in uh, in Leipzig at the Max Planck, Viviana Slon, who was another PhD student working uh, there, um, and her team, um, led by the Nobel Prize winning scientist uh, Svante Pabo, uh, succeeded in showing that the bone had DNA that derived in roughly equal measure from a Neanderthal and from a Denisovan, and so we were, we were able to show that this uh, this 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 girl, this this young woman, uh, had a Neanderthal mother and a Denisovan father, and it was the first time we've ever found a first generation hybrid person in archaeological uh, in the in the world ever, and so um, this has been really an exciting find because it's it's shown how how maybe how common it was for these different populations to meet one another and to interbreed. And um, uh, I mean, in, in many ways, we perhaps could have predicted this, um, but you know, there's nothing like 2020 vision. Um, and we're finding now that more and more um, times that bone is sequenced, new bones uh, from the archaeological record are sequenced, we find evidence in their genomes that they have a history of some degree of admixture that in the past, different populations interbred with one another and then became isolated again. And uh, it just so happens that Denny happens to be a first-generation hybrid rather than um, providing evidence for deeper um, admixture history. That's uh, an amazing finding, I, I, I think. And um, in the world before us, you also mentioned ghost populations. What mm. does that exactly mean? So a ghost population is where, where we where we sequence um, a, an ancient genome and we find parts of the genome that we can't match, we can't compare to existing genomes. So, for example, 
some of the DNA in us, we can easily say this is Neanderthal because it's got an identical sequence, or this is Denisovan, an identical sequence. But a proportion of it, um, it doesn't match anything. And so this, these sections of DNA are called um, ghost sections um, and may derive from ghost populations, populations that we don't know the identity of, we haven't sequenced yet. And so there's quite a bit of this DNA out there, and it's tempting to think that it's derived from two sources. One, it could just simply be a statistical aberration, um, meaning that we haven't quite managed to um, do effective analysis statistically of this uh, of this DNA. Two, it could be that we either are lacking the breadth of DNA from existing living human populations or from ancient human populations. And that's why we can't sequence this DNA or we can't compare these sequences of DNA. So, for example, it could be that there is um, there are other humans out there in the archaeological record that we haven't found yet. I think this is a dis distinct possibility when you consider what we've found even in the last 20 years. But also, um, in Africa, there's the greatest source of genetic diversity, and there's still a great deal to know and understand about what's happening in Africa in terms of uh, genetics. For example, only a couple of years ago, uh, a couple of years ago, um, DNA from uh, Khoisan uh, groups were sequenced, and this added more than 10% to the sum totality of genetic variation we have for Homo sapiens. And so I think over the next few years, as we find more archaeological um, human remains that can be genetically sequenced, and we sequence more in terms of living human DNA, we may find that these ghost populations either disappear or they become uh, even more manifest. And we find out even more about this incredible uh, historical legacy that we have from these, um, from these ancient uh, human relatives that are now no longer with us. So... Of course, one of the key questions is that how come the Homo sapiens survived and all these different human types did not? Why do you think this happened? Yeah, so this is, uh, again, there are lots of uh, varying different viewpoints. And I think if you ask um, 10 paleoanthropologists what they think, you may get 10 slightly different answers. But um, I think it's fair to say that there have been lots and lots of single um, cause arguments uh, to say why humans uh, are the only survivors left. But I think the most common ones are to do with the fact that people think that we are more cognitively um, gifted and uh, more advanced uh, in terms of our uh, adaptation technology and behavior. Uh, I think this is one of the common things that has been uh, suggested. And this is kind of easy to understand because we're, we are literally the last people standing and therefore it's easy to think that we must be better than everybody else but i think actually that uh the answer might not be as simple as that i think it may be down to other things um and certainly um there's been a lot of work over this in the last few years other explanations volcanic eruptions disappear making neanderthals disappear um changes in the earth's uh, geomagnetic field increasing levels of um, skin cancers and killing Neanderthals off, um, diseases killing Neanderthals off. There's been a whole range of different things. But I think one of the most interesting um, explanations uh, recently is to do with the fact that we know, based on these ancient genomic uh, results, that the population size might be a key thing. Um, we, we can reconstruct population size um, from the careful analysis of nuclear DNA sequenced from Neanderthals. And what this has suggested is that Neanderthals were probably present in quite low numbers. Yeah. 
in terms of their total population. In fact, it's possible that at any one time there could have been only five or six thousand Neanderthals living uh, on planet Earth. And so uh, when we compare that evidence with evidence for Homo sapiens, we find that it's a rather different story. We find that there were probably more Homo sapiens than Neanderthals. Um, and so it's possible that it could simply be that there were more of us than them. And once we came into contact with them, it may be that they either disappeared um, as an inevitable um, result of their small populations being isolated from one another. And I think another uh, an intriguing possibility could simply be that their population assimilated into ours and we sort of took them into our rather meta population. And that might be uh, the way that, Neander that Neanderthals disappeared. As far as Denisovans go, though, we, we don't really know because there's not very much archaeological evidence. We know that Denisovan um, diversity in terms of their genetics is much higher. We know that their populations are more complex. And there's intriguing evidence that Denisovans may even have survived up until as recently as 20 to 22,000 years ago, in which case we're talking about a period of great upheaval and change in the world where the climate became the coldest it's ever been. The last glacial maximum, as it's called, saw temperatures plunge. Um, huge ice sheets formed, sea levels dropped, and uh, populations contracted. And it's tempting to think that this may have been where we see the end of Denisovans and they disappear as a function of this, as well as perhaps increasing pressure on them from competing groups of Homo sapiens that had moved into Eastern Eurasia. So there's still a lot to learn and still a lot to understand, a lot we don't know about why these different groups um, disappeared. I think there's probably not one single explanation for all of it. It may be that it's much more complex than that, and we just have to try and work our way through the evidence carefully and understand why it is that these groups are now sadly no longer with us. But then now we know that we have some uh, genetic uh, inheritance from the Neanderthals and the Denisovans. Can we identify exactly which traits we have inherited from them? Yes, that's right, we can. And uh, this is a really exciting um, area of research, working out the function of the DNA that we inherit. Um, what it looks, it looks as though what happened was that once uh, this interbreeding had taken place, there was a selection against Neanderthal DNA um, in the case of Neanderthals. And so um, we think that what happens is that because Neanderthals are present in lower numbers, that if you're in a small population, it's much more difficult and less efficient to remove mutations in your DNA. And so these mutations begin to gradually build up and build up because they're not being cleaned in a larger population. And so um, once Neanderthals and Homo sapiens meet after their separation, so more than three or 400,000 years has gone by at this point, um, we see um, that after integration of Neanderthal DNA into Homo sapiens populations, we see that the amount of DNA from Neanderthals begins to be selected against rather dramatically and it falls very quickly. And then it stays at about the same level for tens of thousands of years, so around 2 to 3%. Um, which is about the level that we have today. Um, and so now, um, now that we know which DNA we inherit, um, it's possible to look at the function of that DNA and what it gives us. And interestingly, there are some negative things and some positive things that we get from 
seemingly from Neanderthals. So, for example, a negative thing would be that DNA sequences associated with uh, type 2 diabetes seem to derive from Neanderthals. And also from um, smoking um, addictive behaviors and from uh, the disease lupus. Um, in the case of diabetes, this doesn't mean that um, Neanderthals all had diabetes. It may simply be that there's a, a sort of a double-edged sword to those genes. Um, and diabetes-related uh, DNA may have been a beneficial um, response to have if you're dealing with long periods of, of, of lacking access to food. It's simply that now in the modern world, when we have so much access to sugar, that it becomes actually a deleterious uh, uh, gene to have or group of genes to have. Um, but we do find benefits uh, that seems seem to have accrued from Neanderthals. For example, um, the quality of collagen skin and hair uh, derived from Neanderthals seems to have been a beneficial um, um, uh, trait for us. Um, but again, we're, we're learning more and more all the time about this DNA. And that's because we now have huge data banks that uh, provide living human DNA and that's coupled with um, work like uh, has happened at the UK's Biobank, where they interview patients and they ask them about their daily lives. Um, you know, does your skin burn quickly? Um, what kind of mobile phone do you use? Um, what time do you like to wake up in the morning? And so on and so forth. So we can look at the phenotype and the DNA. And we can also look at the, the Neanderthal DNA and how often that is expressed with respect to these different phenotypes. And so we can see, and we can try and now understand what exactly is the DNA from Neanderthals and how it affects us today. This is quite new research. It's only in the last few years that this has been done, but we're starting to learn more and more about, um, about the uh, gift of this uh, genetic legacy and what it actually means for us living today in our daily lives. And if you were to travel back in time, which ancient hominin would you like to have met? Do you have a preference? I think I'd like to go back and um, meet uh, the parents of Denny and uh, and see where they lived and how how they lived and um, where they moved to and how they met one another. Um, I'm really intrigued by uh, by 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 the situation in Russia and particularly in the Denisova cave area. It's a beautiful part of the world. There's so much exciting archaeology. And I think that it's significant geographically because it's at the midpoint of the continent and it's between two populations of Denisovans in the east and Neanderthals in the west and that they occasionally overlapped at this point. And so I'm really interested to see what it was like in the deep past and to try and look over the shoulders of these um, hominins as they interacted with one another. And if, if you give me a time machine, I think that would be the place I would go to first. <laughs> Probably I would join you if I could. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd be amazing. So this has been uh, an amazing discussion. Uh, could you tell us what you're currently working on? Yes. Um, at the moment, I am trying to um, publish a whole lot of uh, results that uh, we obtained uh, from a previous project, um, looking at dating a period um, we call the initial Upper Paleolithic. This is a period between 40 to 60,000 years ago, where we see new types of, of technologies um, appearing right across Eurasia. And we think this is the um, sort of the pathway, the uh, evidence left by early Homo sapiens as they moved into these areas. So I'm trying to publish a lot of this work. Um, similarly, um, with Katarina Duca, my wife, we, um, we have a lot of new discoveries of uh, little tiny bones that we found from 
sites like Denise of the Cave, which have been genetically sequenced. And we're hoping to publish more of those uh, in the next uh, in the next uh, year or so. Um, as always with the academic world, we're always trying to find money to uh, to fund new work. And at the moment, I have a couple of research grants that I've just submitted that I'm hoping will be able to be funded. And then we'll do a whole, whole lot more interesting research that hopefully will be able to be talked about in the next four or five years. Great. Tom, many thanks for joining us today. Pleasure. Thank you so much for um, your interest and for a very interesting interview.